This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Harbin and I'm joined by James Forsyth. Well, earlier today we had another PMQ's clash between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. James, how do you think it went? Well, I thought actually the most striking thing about PMQ's today was the six questions from the Scottish Nationalists, because PMQ's took place just a couple of hours Mm. after the Supreme Court handed down its verdict. And I think the Supreme Court's verdict surprised some court watchers. The expectation of lots of people who know much more about constitutional law than I do, was that they thought that the, the, the Supreme Court's inclination would be to say, come back to us when you've actually passed this bill. We're not going to start offering opinions on things that might happen. And the Supreme Court said, no, the Scottish Government need to be able to get an opinion before they act and what's there. But after that, it was much less good, good news for the Scottish Government because they basically said, this is outside of the competence of the Scottish Government. And essentially said, you can't have a referendum without a Section 30 order, which is the Westminster Parliament essentially consenting to it. And at the moment, there is uh, the Westminster government is not planning to grant a Section 30 order. It is camping out on the argument that, you know, there was a referendum in 2014 and we're less than a decade on from that. And it was kind of said at the time that that referendum should be once in a generation. What's jumped out for me at PMQs was how the SNP kind of clearly wanted a fight about this. But Rishi Sunak was determined not to, give them, not to give it to them. Every answer he came back with, there was no crowing about the result in the court. It was, I want to work constructively with the Scottish government. This is what we're going to do. He kept pointing out to individual SNP MPs, things that were happening in their constituency, like the Victoria and Albert Museum, opening up or a growth plan or a free port. And I think you can see that this big shift, I think, from the approach of kind of Liz Truss, which was you know, Nicholas Sturgeon is an attention seeker who is best ignored. And I think and I think you saw, you know, there was there was then a UQ to Alistair Jack, the Scotland Secretary afterwards. And you know Alistair Jack who is who is naturally a slightly more competitive figure one to might say with the SP, was again very much sticking to this script of mm. no, no you know, we plan to work constructively with the Scottish government on the priorities of the Scottish people. And I think I mean, I think this debate I mean, you can see that the, 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 the SNP, and this is something that, that I'd be fascinated in your, your take on living up in Scotland, that for Nicola Sturgeon, in her statement asked the Supreme Court, you know, she is going back to this idea that let's use the 2024 general election as a referendum. I think that is a big risk for the SNP, because even in 2015, they didn't get 50% of the vote, or 50% plus of the vote. And I think a, a general election campaign, which was treated as a proxy vote on independence, especially when there is a chance of a change in government to Westminster, you know, a high chance of changing government to Westminster, I think is a, is a hard ask for them because you both will get some, some kind of social democrat, indie curious voters yeah. want to vote Labour because they're thinking about Westminster. And at the same time, it's easier to get unionist tactical voting going yeah. because of it. Yeah, they, I mean, this is the point at which a vote for the SNP stops being stronger voice for Scotland and starts being about the future of Scotland within or without the UK. And that is, as you say, a big ask when you've got a lot of voters who are unsure about where they stand on the union. So Scottish political culture is always 
interesting and quite robust. And I think it's going to make the next general election up in Scotland even more feverish than than these things usually are, which is going to be interesting, I think. There was also a supportive question from Theresa May, wasn't there? On, on the theme of trying to sort of love bomb Scottish MPs and trying to have a more constructive tone about the SNP. Yeah, I think she was trying to say you know, the SNP should now stop obsessing about independence. But I always think this is a slightly flawed approach because the clue is the SNP is in the name. I don't think, you know, but the, 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 this is that. But We um, did get a lecture from Nicola Sturgeon earlier about thoughtful unionists, yeah. which I think everyone was probably really flattered by. I, I thought there's also interesting, if one has been unkind, one might call goalpost shifting. That Angus Robertson, or one might say is, you know, logical over here, but Angus Robertson saying, you know, votes for all pro-independence parties, whether they be the Greens or ALBA, mm. um, should count towards this total. I think there is an interesting question, which is, on another day, the UK government will have to address, which is, what are the grounds on which, when they would grant a Section 30 order? Yeah. Now, I think their strongest argument at the moment is that... The polls at the moment show a small lead for no, generally. And I think you can't claim that that there is clearly the settled will of the Scottish people is for independence and they're just not being allowed a referendum. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think the opinion polls allow you to say that. No. And I think there's also another thing, which is, if you think back, or in, you know, you'll remember these, you know, when you talk to SNP people after 2014, and particularly after 2015 and their success in that general election, the kind of general chat was, you know, support in the high 50s or 60% mm. for a sustained mm. period of time. Mm. They've not got there. So I think, I think there are two interesting inevitability arguments. One argument is, look at the generational crosstabs on this question. Mm. You know, it's coming back. The other argument, which I think is, is, is also interesting, which is also look at all the things that have happened since 2014, which you would have thought would have could, would be things that could drive up support for independence, uh, and yet independence is still bobbing, level pegging, or just behind mm. the union. I think the SNP have been incredibly effective in not appearing to be in government, but they are struggling with that now. I mean, just the way in which they responded to that leak from NHS Scotland minutes of a, a confidential meeting that ended up in the hands of a BBC journalist. The SNP went absolutely bananas because this leak included discussion of whether there was merit in having a two-tier NHS. And I think a, a lot of unionists were sort of wryly amused by their reaction because the SNP themselves know that were this a leak from NHS England or from the Department of Health in England, they would have used it to make the point that actually Scotland's precious health service is not safe within the United Kingdom and the only way to protect it from becoming a two-tier service is to become independent. But instead they basically had to resort to to rubbishing the leak and to trying to, as they often do, sort of undermine the credibility of, of the reporters involved. When actually, you know, you could have a, a discussion about whether it's reasonable for, for these meetings to discuss this sort of thing if not to just work out how to argue against them, but um, but but it has underlined the difficulties of being in government that you do have to deal with an NHS that is you know falling over both in Scotland and in England, and uh, and it's much it's much harder to constantly convince Scots that this is because of the bad Westminster government when this is a devolved issue. And other news today, 
Richard United has appointed Adam Tolly Casey to investigate these bullying accusations against Dominic Raab. Mm. The, the government say that you know, he will basically operate quickly, try and get to the bottom of this. Do you think... So I suppose, first of all, what do you think this independent investigation will be seeking to establish? And secondly, some of the heat seems to have gone out of a debate about bullying at Westminster, but it obviously is not as an issue hasn't gone away. Do you, do, we, do you think this will be the kind of last of these investigations? No, I don't think so. I think one thing that is prolonging the general coverage of bullying, as, as well as the fact that there are lots of people with allegations to make of bullying, is that um, there is still a question about propriety and ethics more widely in this government. So Rishi Sunak again was asked at Prime Minister's Questions today whether he was going to appoint an ethics advisor and he said he wanted to, but that hasn't happened yet. And that's obviously not going to close off questions about the behaviour of individual ministers, but it doesn't help with the sense that this isn't a, a big change of regime and a big change of approach when you haven't made an appointment that would at least suggest you're taking it more seriously than, for instance, Liz Truss, who said she wouldn't need one because she knew she was good at it. Oh, yeah, I think, I think the other challenge is, what powers do you wish to give mm. the advisor on, on ministerial interest? Because there is a kind of weird duality here, which is, I think there is, a, there is a clearly a strong case that they need the ability to investigate things. That You know, you can't be in a situation where there's clearly stuff out there in the public domain that should be investigated, and the, the Prime Minister just sits on her hands and doesn't commission an investigation and therefore one can't happen. But on the other hand, ultimately, the choice about who is in the government has to be up to the Prime Minister. And that is also revealing of the Prime Minister's, you know, and the Prime yeah. Minister will be judged for that uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and, and the party he leads will be judged for that at the, at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, there is a kind of tricky question about how you strike this balance between the independent advisor obviously needs the ability to investigate things that are troubling, regardless of whether or not the Prime Minister is prepared to give their say-so or not. But at the same time, ultimately, it, it should be the Prime Minister who is responsible for the actions of ministers who are, who are in yeah. the government. I mean, that, that's a kind of... I, mean, I think striking that balance yeah. is difficult. And I think you saw with some of the agonies of, of, of Lord Guide mm. that there is also a difficulty, which is, again, if you are a unelected person mm. you are you are reluctant to say things that you know what the consequences of that will be because yeah, particularly with regards to the prime minister yeah and that, 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 that is that is not simple either and i think i think it's one of these things which is these issues are one of these things where where the the, the appealing solution it often is not quite appealing as it sounds i've been writing my politics column about Keir Starmer floating ideas about House of Lords reform. And, you know, when you look at, uh, uh, you know, House of Lords, the idea that the Prime Minister would say, well, I don't want to be able to have the power to appoint anyone. It all sounds very noble. Yeah. But at the same time, if you think about the, the way the, the, the Westminster system works, if you want to bring an expert in as a minister, yeah. the House of Lords right now, making them appear and, and sending them there, is the only way we have to do that. And yeah. if you think of times when, uh, situations when it might be valuable to bring someone mm. in to do that job, mm. to do a particular job, if you remove the Prime Minister's power to appoint people to the House of Lords, mm-hmm. you end that. Now, I, I think there is clearly a balance that you can strike, which is to give the House of Lords Appointments Commission 
some more power. So, yeah. for example, if if Nero wished to make his horse Lord Horse, that that, that there should be a, wouldn't be a massive stretch these days. To be no, fair, no, that, you know, they, they, they should have the power to say that that is not a good idea, or you know. But I think that, however unappealing it might sound, the ability of the prime minister to appoint people to a House of Lords if used correctly, is actually one of the things that can improve the quality of the ministerial rank. And it is difficult to, you know, even aside from ministerial appointments, obviously crossbenchers are not appointed in the same way, but it is difficult even when you're appointing party political peers to really sort of quantify what is good experience and what isn't. I mean, you know, there was a lot of criticism, for instance, when David Cameron appointed one of his mates, Michelle Moan, known as the bra queen, to the Lords. Now, his argument, as much as he made one, was that she had considerable expertise in business. Well, I mean, she did, but also was that the reason she was being appointed? And so it's very difficult to say, you know, this person is an expert in blah, but also they just happen to be a really good chum of mine. You know, it, it is very, very difficult to, to quantify that. And often the appointments that you get to the Lords versus the the actual sort of working peers, is, is there's quite a disparity between that. I think we also, I mean, um, one final point, I think we should also, if people wish to do it for a period of time and then retire, mm, yeah. know, people do retire. It's becoming Lords, more common, actually, But, but, it, but it, it? Yeah. it's still relatively uncommon. There are yeah. still lots of people who, and I mean, there is a kind of case for saying to people, look, be a peer, but if but the point at which you have decided that you do not wish to be kind of active, yeah. that is a moment from a moment at which to, to step back. Well, thank you, James. Thank you to me. And thank you for listening.